So doing lower reaching exercises or heel elevation exercises going to bring me into more of a heel strike bias, which is then going to open up some of that initial shoulder flexion, external, internal rotation. And then I can move on to more of a mid-stance phase, which is a little more force production. Now I'm getting into strength, right? It's like heel strike hypertrophy. It's like you look at an off-season. And this is just my theory. Like this is kind of could be out there, but the first phase of like an off season is more heel strike. It's more, you know, hypertrophy. Let's build some more muscle mass. Let's build some more range of motion. Let's try to restore some of that range of motion that we lost from the in season. And then we move into more strength in the second phase, right? That phase is more mid stance. I need to start producing force. Hmm. That was Alex Zephyr. And you're listening to the just fly performance podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, simplyfaster.com. There's two items I'd like to talk to you about today that you can find in Simply Faster's online store. Uh, whether you're a coach or an athlete, these are both things that you'll find highly useful as tools in your training toolbox. The first is blood flow restriction training methods. And after hearing about blood flow restriction training for years now, as well as the results that athletes are getting with it, especially in, for example, uh, lactate sports like swimming, 100 meter freestyle. I And not only hearing of that, but also seeing how much some swimmers had liked that type of training method, I knew I had to start trying it out myself. So uh, I've been utilizing the air bands. I really enjoy it, both the uh, the feeling of training of while I'm actually training with them, as well as seeing the visual result of spending time training with the methods and then the strength result. Uh, they've been a really cool training tool, and I would definitely recommend checking into air bands. Uh, SimplyFaster.com also has B Strong brand blood flow restriction. The second item is the VMAX Pro, and this is a new option for velocity-based training, barbell tracking. It provides valuable load-based data, including speed in all phases of a lift, and it delivers key metrics such as power, velocity, distance, as well as duration of effort. The VMAX Pro system measures any lift you can think of. It's portable, durable, and intuitive. You can check out these two items and much more at our sponsor, simplyfaster.com's online store. Let's get on to the show. Welcome to another show. Thanks for being here with us today. In the world of human performance, biomechanics, therapy, and rehabilitation, there are an immense amount of systems out there, schools of thought with how to best assess and correct and analyze an athlete. And there is an exponential uh, amount more of all the exercise variations that exist. It is very helpful to have guides on our way to understanding the human body and how to understand better which exercises we should have or ideally select in a program. Our guest today, Alex Effer, is the owner of Resilient Training and Rehabilitation. Alex has taken a tremendous amount of continuing education courses and is on the leading edge of modern training theory. He's the owner of Resilient Training and Rehabilitation, and he has trained and treated a wide variety of clients, from professional and amateur athletes to a wide spectrum of general population clientele, those with medical conditions, post-operative rehab, and then individuals with chronic and complex pain. Before Resilient, Alex has gained experience in exercise physiology, strength and conditioning, and has consulted with a number of elite and Olympic organizations. For the show today, Alex will speak on his continuing education journey and some of the core principles that he picked up from some of the current courses and systems in human performance, biomechanics, and assessment. Alex will speak on how to dial down or dial up the points of contact an athlete or client has with the ground 
moving from them being on their back, having many points of contact up to their feet where they have only two, and how to work through all the different points of contact to help an athlete or client achieve better mastery over a skill or core human function. In the second half of the show, Alex will give some analysis and progressions with functional training movements, such as crab walks and bear crawls, as well as a brief chat about some um, how some meathead-oriented exercises, such as arm curl, turning to look at the arm you're working, can actually be more functional than we give them credit for. Finally, Alex will talk about a detailed way to look at exercises from an early stance, mid stance, or late stance perspective, and then how to organize those exercises working from periods of accumulation to intensification from off-season to pre-season. It's really cool when you can not only look at an exercise for its immediate impact on the human body, but also how it might fit in the greater or grander scheme of training and training organization. It was a lot of fun talking to Alex and putting this show together, going through the show notes after recording it. I learned so much in this conversation, and I know you guys will too. Let's get on to it. Episode 274 with Coach Alex Effer. Alex, welcome to the show, man. Uh, so one of the questions I wanted to start with is you've, um, air quotes, taken all the courses <laughs> uh, in terms of all the continuing education and PRI and all that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. What were some common trends uh, that you saw from, uh, from your educational process and maybe that have worked to form your way of current thinking uh, when you work with athletes or coach or client clients? Yeah, Joe, first of all, thanks so much for having me on. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Um, so it's quite an honor. Um, yeah, no, I've taken, I've taken so many courses over the years. Um, I've been working, I've been in this industry working for about 10, 11 years now. Um, and so I've taken everything from S FMS, SFMA, PRI, DNS, FRC, like everything. And it's interesting because when you take them every single course, you kind of get mind blown by them the first time. You're just like, this is it. This is the solution. So I dive right into it. That's the only assessment I use. I'm just going to follow their algorithm because this is, this is where it's at. This is what it's got to be. And then you hit a client that just totally goes against all the algorithms and everything they say. And then you got to pivot. You got to transition. And you got to go to a different thing and you go into PRI and you start to learn about all their systems and, and the way that they think and, um, you know, position the rib cage and the pelvis. And then, all right, well, that's, that's gotta be it. Cause they start to integrate neurology and all these different things. And then again, you know, you kind of hit, you know, maybe you're working with an athlete and you're just like, well, it's very hard to get this NBA basketball, like this basketball player to get on the ground, do 90, 90 hip lift. Like they just want to, get up. They just want to move. Um, you know, frankly, some of them don't, don't even want to be in the weight room. So it's like, you know, you got you to kind of pivot with that. And then, you know, same thing, you get into like FRC and you start talking about joint range of motion and, you know, how the mechanoreceptors respond to internal external rotation. And so, you know, when you take all these things, again, you start to develop or understand or see some patterns that are happening among all of them. One of them is they all believe in some sort of breathing and how respiration affects the body, right? How that affects internal external rotation of our shoulders, our joints. Um, right. So they're starting to talk about position and how the position of the rib cage, the axial skeleton, which essentially is just 
your skull, spine, all the way down to your sacrum. And, you know, some people consider the anominates, but anominates are a little bit more of the appendicular skeleton, which is your, your legs, your arms and your feet, your hands, everything like that. Um, but really what they start talking about is how that position of the axial skeleton of the rib cage and the pelvis influence the hands and the legs and everything like that. And so that starts to make sense. You've got breathing now, you've got position. Okay. So those start to integrate into why mobility could be limited and how to improve mobility, just a different way of looking at it. Um, and then you go one step further and then you think about what else do we do? Well, we also walk. And so now you start to look at gait and you're just like, okay, well, what happens at every single joint or what happens systemically every time I strike the ground and heel strike, as soon as I move into mid stance, and then I propel off the ground and go into toe off. So what are the different interactions between the joints um, how does the force translate through our body? How do the muscles contract depending on the phase of gait? And then what you start to see is if you've got three phases of gait and you've got two phases of respiration, so you've got inhale, which is more external rotation, and exhale, which is more internal rotation, you also have the three phases of gait. Two of the phases are external rotation, so you've got to believe it's got some semblance with inhalation and then you've got one of the phases mid stance which is more pronation so you've got to assume that that's more exhalation and then you can start to bring these things together and say okay well they've got to be related so now when you start to assess people you can say okay well this person is limited in internal rotation okay that means they probably can't exhale in that area and they probably can't achieve a good mid stance of gait or they can't achieve a good pronation of whether it's the hand or the foot, right? Um, because as I pronate my foot, I'm going to have an internal rotation force go all the way up towards my head. And so now I can start to, you know, go there. And like we were discussing before this, it's like, you know, for 80% of the people, that's enough. Like that's all you got to know, right? But we can also get more complex into it and then start to talk more about how we superimpose force vectors on top of that muscle contractility, muscle physiology, um, in terms of, you know, like hypertrophy, for example, if you get a lot of blood going into the muscle that could be seen as expanding the blood, expanding the muscle from the inside out which could potentially be associated with more external rotation, right? Um, like more of these ANRAP type things, more higher volume, lower load, right? Um, I'm kind of like going on a tangent a little bit, but to bring it all back, like really what I have found to affect my own system and the model that I work on is we have to respect position. We have to respect um, that our body needs to be able to inhale and exhale. Right. So can our rib cage, can our pelvis um, experience that multi-directional expansion when we inhale? So can I breathe into every part of my rib cage? And can I exhale every part of that rib cage? If I can't, if I can't get the air in certain parts of my rib cage or certain parts of my pelvis, rib cage is easier to think about, then I am going to 
induce more muscle tone in that area because now the diaphragm or the rib cage isn't able, or the lungs aren't able to expand in certain regions. I now have to use a muscle strategy in order to pull the air in. So I use my lats, I use my pecs, I use my SCM, I use my traps, right? I use all these bigger structures, these superficial structures to get air in. And then it's just like, okay, well, you, somebody has, again, limited range of motion. And they're like, oh, it's, a, it's the pec miner's fault. Like, well, you know, I think that's a, that's a more muscle-centric view of things where it's like, well, what's going on underneath all that muscle? Like, go on the anatomy app and remove all the muscle. How do the bones interact with each other first? What influences how the bones move? We've got this huge pressure system inside of our thorax that is going to affect how everything on the outside is going to move, right? So position, breathing, gait, force vectors. To me, those are kind of the main things that I think about based on all of the different systems I've taken that influence me today and dictate how I may program and what I'm looking at from an assessment standpoint. Um, quickly, I had a follow-up question, but what could yeah. you go into what you mean by force vectors a little bit more? Maybe you already said it, but I have just a little more clear definition there. Yeah, for sure. So force vector is something I've been looking into more recently um, because, you know, like we look at gait, right? And we look at running. And gait and running are different. They're very different. They're different forces. Um, you know, when we're walking, we're probably on the ground longer than when we're running, right? And there's also different force vectors at play. So the main two force vectors, as far as I'm aware of, are horizontal and vertical forces. And during gait, so I'll explain gait because maybe a little bit easier to understand. So during gait, again, we've got three phases. We've got heel strike, mid stance, toe off. Heel strikes when I hit the ground, mid stance when I pronate, toe off is when I extend or lift my heel and push myself on the other leg. Two of those, so the heel strike and the toe off, as I said, they're more external rotation. They actually are more associated with horizontal force vectors. Whereas the mid stance is actually a vertical displacement of the body. So there's more vertical force associated with it. You know, whether you want to say that that is a, I'm lifting up, or if you want to say that is me going down into the ground, it's still a vertical displacement. Because the reality is, is internal rotation is a downward force into the ground, right? And then the other force vector that I see, and, you know, probably not called the force vector, but the influence of, the ground reaction forces and how our body self-organizes itself in order to manage the ground. Like, why do we pronate? Why do we internally rotate? Because we are hitting something that we cannot break. We're hitting a ground that does not really visibly anyway deform as soon as we hit it. So now that arch that we create when we strike the ground now has to flatten in order to fully distribute force along the entire foot to then allow me to, you know, which is what's going to um, get the, you know, the elasticity through the, the tissues and the connective tissues to allow me to then propel 
forward um, through an elastic leg, um, you know, those are going to also impact how our body changes its shape, so to say, when we move. So vertical and horizontal force vectors um, is kind of the way that I'm looking at it based on gait as well. Gotcha. I'm glad you said gait is not running. That was something I confused myself quite a bit, I would say about four years ago, was trying to go through like how gait was described and all the joint actions and then think, wait, does that happen at running here? Like, and you go to so when you, Adarian Barr said it well, right towards the end of when I left San Francisco, one of the last sessions I was working with him is like walking and walking your, your gait, you're kind of working with your body and how your body innately manages and processes forces but once you're running you're managing the forces as per the physics needed by sprinting things change like even one of the things i've been thinking about recently is like when you're sprinting you have and your knee is up in front of you your foot is kind of pronated you, your leg has internal rotation then it's going to snap down and be externally rotating through the ground but the foot's going to hit the ground so now that you have that frictional force acting on the foot the foot's going to probably pronate first but the rest of your it's just like Stuff just so muddied up. It's it's so Darren's like I'm done with that. I'm doing circles now. I'm on <laughs> when it comes. Yeah. To <laughs> so. Well, it's funny because I was I was in the same boat. I'm just like oh gate running. Okay, I'm going to apply gate mechanics to runners. It's like well they manage different forces mm-hmm. because as I said, like when you're running, you really shouldn't be on. If you want to be efficient runner, you shouldn't be on the ground too long. Mm-hmm. Like you 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 look at the best runners and they're almost floating on the ground. It's kind of like they're running on a treadmill, like they're pushing the ground behind them so efficiently that it doesn't even look like they're hitting the ground too much or too hard. Um, so it was, it was, you know, in the past year, I would say that I started really diving into running, but, you know, again, like it's still very helpful to understand gait because it makes understanding running easier. Um, because you're just like, hey, I just got to superimpose more force and shorter cycles into running versus walking. Walking slower, I'm on the ground longer. So I've got to, as you said, manage forces more or I have to produce forces more because I have to be able to make sure that I'm, you know, maintaining a, you know, a stable body, so to say. Versus when I strike the ground, I'm running, I have to manage a lot more forces, a lot more intense, um, because running is just like a plyometric version of walking, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, little- maybe you could say too, it's sprinting or change the direction you have forces. How, what would you, how am I trying to phrase this? Like you have um, more probably passive forces that are the result of collisions entering the system too, versus exactly. walking. Exactly. I was, yeah, exactly. There's a lot more elastic forces going through. Um, the body or a lot more elastic forces that are required in like the use of the tendons and connective tissues in order to be able to manage these hard collisions, as you said. Um, it's when we can't manage the hard collisions or we don't have the ability to maintain stiffness at the areas that we need it to, that we start to run into maybe a little bit of these, you know, strains or, or you know, force managing injuries associated with running right we can't get off the ground fast enough we're on the ground too long so now we've got to manage a lot more forces than we should be and the tendons aren't able to elastically react right so there's a lot more uh a lot more forces we have to 
appreciate with running than walking. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that's probably the beauty of it. Such a complex and beautiful puzzle. Uh, yeah. with, all, with all the courses you've taken. So I think I look at some of the different trained guests that we've had on this podcast. And a lot of people have been, you know, compared to maybe SFMA or DNS, which I've I've gone through some, like I have never been to a clinic or been, you know, certified for that stuff. I've known coaches and therapists who've done that work and seen the work done. And I, I get it, um, especially kind of SFMA maybe, but um, uh, yeah, we've been a big train of it. Our PRI, people with Bill, in the Bill Hartman world, uh, mm-hmm. at least the, the people who have been on this show. So I'm, I'm curious, I mean, my, and from what you said, you talked about position, inhaling, exhaling, gait. Uh, those are things that I think are very common in PRI and, and what Bill talks about, albeit very easy to get confused too. And hopefully that's the goal is to unravel some of that. Um, but would you say that um, maybe as opposed to PRI, like some of those other systems, do those have any big rocks or are those? Because I, from what I'm aware of, like SFMA, I don't know how much they necessarily talked about like rib mobility and the inhaling, exhaling, like that kind of thing. I, I mean, was, did you, do you feel like most of what you've gotten is out of like the PRI train or other, other like really valuable things that are stick with you regularly on other systems? I think so. PRI 100% has been a huge, one of the biggest influences on me. I, I just like their, they have more of an osteopathic approach to things where they view things more systemically. I mean, now they're coming out with, I think, jaw related courses and, and stuff like that. And, it's just really cool to see how you can integrate, you know, what's happening at the pelvis and the rib cage and, and, the, and the skull and the foot and like how all these different things interact versus more of an orthopedic type view of things where we're just looking at, you know, a mechanical way of how joints move. Right. Um, so PRI is definitely great. Um, I, I took DNS and granted I only took one course, um, you know, I took the exercise course and they were talking a lot about how they apply, you know, baby movements and how reflexes like when we were born are going to relate to, we have to restore those innate pathways. Um, I, I had a hard time with that. I just, you know, I think babies and adults or children or whatever, they're totally different in their genetic makeup. Um, in terms of, you know, like how their tendons are formed, their connective tissue, um, the fact that the baby's head is yeah, just head so size. heavy. I was just about to say that, yeah. You know what I mean? Like the baby's head's so heavy, that's probably able to get into such a deep squat. Um, and they don't have the ability, they don't have the, uh, the, they don't have, they've never really been exposed to a lot of forces, really. I mean, our body, like as adults, it is a collection of forces that we've had to, you know, manage over a long period of time and traverse different environments. And that is why we get stiff. That is why we can't move certain things because we adapt to our environments. Babies have no context yet, right? Children have no context. They haven't experienced enough. That's why they have so much mobility because their body, you know, it's, it's innate that we want as much mobility as possible so that we can adapt to as many different environments as possible. But the reality is, is as you start to grow, as you start to play different sports, your body adapts. And that's why you're not good at everything, right? Whereas a baby seems to be good at everything because from a movement standpoint, Yeah, just, right? just articulation, not, not yeah. stiffness and force. <laughs> not stiffness. Exactly, exactly. Just articulation, just being able to drop down to a squat. Um, so what I really like, though, about 
DNS was from what I took is, and I, what I still do today is in my warmups, I think about um, the developmental sequences um, in terms of, you know, laying on your back is the easiest. It's easier to control against gravity. As you lay on your side, you have less point of contact on the ground. When you get quadruped, even less, it's harder to maintain a position, half kneeling, even less. And then as we go up, we now have to go from having, you know, 12 points of contact to the ground to just having two and how to manage that. And so instead of taking somebody from like on their back and doing a a corrective, if that's how you want to call it, or some type of, you know, movement that you want to do on the ground and then expecting them to translate it to when they're standing on two feet, you know, I I don't, I don't think that, you know, that's a very logical conclusion that they both can be um, transferred because you're dealing with different gravitational requirements. Right. So in my warmups, I really do think of things as a neurodevelopmental sequence of not so much like this is what the baby did, but more so like these are the gravitational demands and supine is easier than mm-hmm. quadruped because of the reduced gravitational demands. Right. So I like that about that system. I'm not a huge fan of their assessment process. Um, I just think that it's super specific to their thought process. Um, and then SFMA, the only, the real thing I like about it is taking active measurements and then applying mm-hmm. passive to them. So it's like, Hey, hey, look at a squat. Okay, great. That squat's got a breakdown. Look at hip flexion, look at straight leg raise, um, look at hip extension. And you can start to tease out what may be happening during that active movement by taking pieces off the table. Now, some may say that it's a little bit, oh, you're taking pieces out of the the whole dynamic movement and you're not, you know, kind of like dynamic systems theories approach where it's like focus on one part, you're neglecting the how the whole system moves together. It's like, well, it just provides us with more information to allow us to understand what's happening with the active movement. So I would say really the warm-up from DNS, like the sequence, and then um, active versus passive ranges of motion and assessment is kind of what I got from the rest of them. Um, and then, yeah, I would say that's the, those are the main two. I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, on the show to talk about uh, hypnosis and mental training for athletes. Uh, While talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix Formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, but I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the Shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order and they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. Sure. Yeah, I, I remember that the active versus passive was the big one I remembered from SFMA, but I don't ever, honestly, I don't use anything from that, like, system. I, I was, as I was taking through it, I just, I, I'm a kind of a, 
like if you look at macro and micro thinking like structure versus free, I understand the need for structure. I try to structure my life as much as I can, as much as is necessary. But when it's like, do this step, this step, this step, this step, I just, oh, like everything inside of you is like, oh, I can't, I'm doing, I'm having a hard time dealing with this. Right. <laughs> I agree. And that, that was my problem with a lot of them is algorithms are great because they allow us to understand. The problem is, is what, and what I've seen from experience and me personally, is you get so sucked into the algorithm that you take thinking out of the equation. There's no dynamic thinking as soon as you work with somebody. It's like, okay, I got to follow this algorithm to a T and these are the exercises that I should be doing if I see this. And oftentimes you're like, well, you know, this, why, why does this right hip have no internal rotation? Well, that's that shouldn't mm-hmm. be a thing. Everybody, everybody should have good right hip internal rotation, yeah. right? And then you're just like, Shh, well, what do I do now? <laughs> you know. And so that that's always been my problem with, with algorithms is you get you get stuck into it, and then you don't know how to apply different systems with it. Do you know what I mean? Can't be dynamic. I think I was yeah. My when I was in seventh or eighth grade, my uh, algebra teacher, she was like, Joel gets the same answers as everyone else, but he didn't do it the same way as everyone else. I think it's just been always <laughs> in my nature to just do things. However, I kind of <laughs> felt like they should be done. Um, but I, uh, so I was going to say, um, all right. So with the DNS, I'm, I'm trying to put this together. So I, I, I get what you're saying. Like when your back is on the ground, you're lying on the ground, you have all these points of contact, all this sensory information. It makes me think about when Edward Wu, Feldenkrais practitioner, was on the show. He talks about putting people on the ground to help them feel something and then standing up and running. But also like what you're saying, like I get that there's more sensation on the ground. But you're also saying going from 12 points to two is a big jump. Like how do we transfer that? And like, yeah. I was just thinking Kristen Thibodeau was just on the show recently talking about like points of transfer, transferring like a leg extension to a vertical jump is way too far. A leg press to a jump is a little close. Okay, now we're cooking. A squat to a jump is real close. And But you could use the whole spectrum to, to, to play with there. Um, so I'm kind of thinking of it in a similar fashion here. So you're saying that like lying on my back, playing with movements on my back probably isn't going to transfer to running on two legs. I have to do intermediate steps or can you... I don't know. I'm trying to figure out exactly what you're saying with how you actually transition someone from all these. I'm on my back. Okay. Now I'm crawling. Okay. Now I'm half, you know, like, how do you, can you go into that a little bit more? For sure. So as I said, when you're on your back, there's less gravitational demands than when you're standing, right? I have the ability to, um, you know, feel my back against the ground, have my head against the ground. Um, you know, I could do a 90, 90 position where I know my feet are on the wall. So I'm starting to transfer a little bit of this, um, connection to the ground. So let me clarify with every exercise I do on the ground, I try to have the feet involved. And the reason why is because that mid that minimizes the distance of transferability, as you said, right? So I can now integrate I can push certain parts of my foot into the ground that replicate a certain stance phase. So when I stand up and walk, my body has a little bit of connection. Like, hey, when that big toe hits the ground, this should happen at the hip or this should happen at the rib cage. And so I start to get some muscle activity. Um, but typically what I'll do is let's say I take somebody in supine. Okay. Let's give, a, let's give like a, an example. Let's say I do something like a, a supine cross connect, which essentially is I'm laying on my back. I have my right leg extended with my foot on the wall and I have my left leg marched up. So it looks like I'm doing a march on my back. 
Okay. And then I bring my right elbow to my left knee. So that's the cross connect where the bottom, the elbow is coming across my body. Okay. So that's like a march. Okay. So what I would do is I would take that. I would do a supine cross connect with the intention of trying to improve um, maybe a little bit more hip extension on the right leg and a little bit more hip internal rotation on that left side because I'm marching the knee up into that 90 degree range of hip flexion, which is when the anterior glute meat becomes an internal rotator, piriformis becomes an internal rotator. Um, and I start to get some of the adductor as well, um, which the adductor will, from a position of flexion, becomes an internal rotator because it's going to want to extend after that. Anyway, so right leg is basically its dance phase. Left leg is in swing phase, and you want to call it that. Um, I can then now flip somebody on there um, in quadruped and do the same thing. So now hands and knees on the ground, but the right leg is extended on the wall. Mm. So they're still producing the same thing. What they're doing is they're just, they now only have three points of contact against the ground, right? Then I can get them standing, but I can have their fingertips on the wall, for example, and I can do the same thing where now I have the left leg marched up, right leg on the ground, but I, I still have three points of contact with my fingers on the wall to give my rib cage the ability to, or to give my rib cage the ability to expand or to come back so I can reach, have my shoulder blades come around my rib cage, right? Um, what that's going to do then is that's going to allow me to stand, but still supported. So now I can transfer what I had on the ground and in quadruped to standing, but I still have some support. And then from there, I can do maybe a step up to a cross connect, or I can do a walking cross connect where I'm now alternating, right? Um, that's like a, I guess you could call it lower level transition, mm. um, right? But that's just an example of how you may be able to take the ground. So you're coming from a supported environment, very supported on the ground, and reducing the support but still having some maintenance of the support. So the body is able to understand how to self-organize itself or control itself with different gravitational demands. Got it. Uh, that makes me think as you're talking about that and with the cross connect. And I know one of the questions I had was uh, helping people get more reciprocal in their hips and th that type of thing. I've seen the cross connects. Actually, I've, I haven't been on the show down that path yet. So I hope to ask you some more questions there. But I think about, I want to say it was Dan Fichter. I know for a fact that he talks about Louis Simmons, working with Louis Simmons and having Louis Simmons basically just do like five or 10 minutes of basically that standing cross connect, like touch your opposite elbow to your opposite knee. I think he had Louis doing it super slow and Louis' deadlift felt great and his deadlift went up or something like that because he was probably so just bilateral, just getting some reciprocation and it was really good for him. But I want to say, I think Dan would have that just standing cross connect as a, a part of what they were doing neurologically pretty regularly. And I think about mm -hmm. with that whole pattern, like, would you say that, I mean, if you're a supine doing these things, like you're pretty dysfunctional, right? Like a, a normal, you got a normal group of athletes. And this yeah. is always the funny thing too, is like every time you go to a clinic seminar, you see coaches go to clinics seminar. they always start doing whatever the exercise was at that seminar. Everyone gets it. Everyone does it. You go to FRC, everyone comes back and does that for like, right. But how many people really need to be doing the lowest level? Like 
So pretty much the if supines for someone who or when would you use uh, what I'm saying is, I guess, when are you going to get someone on the, their back where that's like, OK, you really need 12 points of contact. Geez, you're like a train. Like, when, like <laughs> at what point does, does does that happen versus like the the more defaulting to the more upright things if I have a group of healthy and functional athletes? Yeah. So for me, it's like when I take somebody through an assessment, for example, really what I'm doing is by looking at. And I, I, I always have a sheet beside me and I write down the numbers, right? In terms of what I'm seeing. And I look at those numbers. What I'm really looking at is, you know, not that somebody's good at straight leg raise or good at hip flexion or something like that. It's more so how far forward is this person? How far forward on their toes is that person, right? As I said, as I go from heel strike to toe off, um, actually, I said this before the call. I start to lose my base of support, right? Mid stance is when I have my most base support. Think of any bilateral movement. I have the widest base support. As soon as I go into toe off, <clears throat> what I'm doing is I am just, res- I am now on my toes. And so I have the least basic support because my other leg is in the air, just about to hit the ground. And I'm on my toes on that leg, right? So my center of gravity goes forward. I start to lose my base support. I start to restrict everything because what I need to do is prevent myself from falling forward on my face, right? Um, and so if I have somebody who's extremely stiff and has a lot of limitation in range of motion, I may put them on their back or on their side because they have, they're so stiff. They don't have the ability to manage gravity very well. Considering the fact they're so limited in range of motion, they've had to push themselves forward so far. That's why they have a limited range of motion, right? So for me, it's like, depending on your measurements, I'm going to put you on your back. I'm going to get you standing. Um, you know, sometimes you look at people's feet and you get them to squat and I'm just like, they're just toe gripping no matter what you do. It's like, okay, I need to reduce gravity with these people. Maybe I do something in half kneeling. If they don't have the hip flexion, if they don't have nine degrees of hip flexion, I can't put them in half kneeling because they can't access that. They just hip their hike up, uh, sorry, they hike their hip up, right? They, they do all these weird things to their torso in order to get in that position. So that's not a good position. Okay, well, let me try quadruped. Well, quadruped, if they don't have nine degrees, that still may not be an effective strategy because you're putting them in a position that they don't have. Okay, so maybe getting them in a sideline activity or supine first, open up some range of motion so that I'm able to access that half kneeling position, right? For me, it's like the supine is going to help me gain range of motion to be able to try something with more range of motion and has more of a gravitational demand to it. Because remember, gravity is a force that's trying to crush us into the ground. So we have to push ourselves into the ground and propel ourselves up against gravity. We have to push against gravity. In order to do that, we have to produce force. Force production tends to limit range of motion to some degree because we are starting to contract tissues. And that's okay, right? That's okay to do that. But we need to make sure that we have a enough range of motion to steal from so that we can produce that force that we then 
or that, that we steal too much and we can't get into those positions, right? So my thing is always, I need to open up range of motion so that I can get people in positions without them feeling a hip flexor, feeling back, feeling calves, when they should be feeling their glute and their hamstrings, right? So my range of motion to determine what position I put people in. Um, if they've got 20 degree straight leg raise or 40 hip flexion, which I've seen plenty, um, especially with athletes, um, you know, maybe starting them on their back really quickly, opening up some quick range of motion and then get them into a half kneeling position um, or a standing, but supported. I talked about before how sometimes what I'll do is I'll put somebody in a heels elevated squat to a box with a goblet hold, literally shift their center of gravity so far for back, minimize the depth in which they have to go down. And because of the constraints that I've put in, their body has no choice but to self-organize itself into the movement that we want. And in order to get into that movement, they have to open up certain ranges of motion, right? It's like, think about the person who can only, they squat to 60 degrees and they start to stick their butt out and their trunk comes forward. It's like, if I elevate the heels, squat them to a box, get the weight in front of them to push them back into their heels, they get down lower. They find it's easier because you just manage their center of gravity. Instead of it being on their toes, it's more on their heels. They have a wider base of support. They have access to more range of motion. Those tissues don't have to contract so hard to prevent them from falling. Gotcha. So one thing I was thinking about as you were talking about that is I, I sometimes I'm hearing this and I always want to uh, picture as if I'm coaching a group in front of me. And I think I know like for a lot of this, I could be very one-on-one oriented or is very good at oh, one-on-ones. Yeah. And so if I had a group and let's just say everyone's barefoot and we're doing standing cross connects where we're just standing, trying to be kind of tall and touching the opposite elbow, opposite knee. If I see some people who are like kind of really bending the knee, toe, keep gripping, keep gripping. Those are the prime candidates to say, hey, let's take a step back. Maybe let's put your hands on the wall uh, mm-hmm. and then like let's go regress to that. You, know, you would be because you have no you're probably not getting anything out of this. You're gripping your toes. It's probably just screwing you up. And then if they're bad at that, then they would go to their back and they still have their foot on the wall and they're, they're, they're doing the, uh, gotcha. Like that's, so just trying to regret my own, I'm making my own regression model, right? <laughs> no, that's, that's a great, great thing. Like I work with a lot of people, um, cause I used to work at the university level where I had a group of football players, right? I had a whole team of football players. Like you can't get people, you can't get some people on their back. You can't get other, you know, other people doing standing cross connect. So it's like, how do you modify it? And that's what it is. It's like, okay, you guys, you're going to do standing cross connect. The other people are going to have your hands on the wall. Um, you just have two different groups because if you have in like, you know, what you could say is you're going to have your toes on the, I'm sorry, your fingertips on the wall. You're going to have a full palm on the wall, right? Again, I have the full palm on the wall. I then have more bait. I have more points of contact that now I don't have the ability to, um, you know, compensate as much, right? I have more stability. I get the abdominals to push myself away from the wall to bring me back in my heels, which then opens up more range of motion in the front of my hip. Because now instead of my hip being flexed, as like if I go into my heels, my hip becomes more extended relatively. 
So I open up the front of my hip a bit. So now when I lift my knee up or I march my knee up, I don't have to do a butt wink or roll my pelvis back or crunch down because I don't have that hip flexion. Right. Um, or alternatively, you get them more on a horizontal angle. Again, we talked about the beginning of this, how toe-off and heel strike are more of a horizontal force vector. So maybe you do that 45-degree march, which again, because it's 45 degrees, there's less vertical forces on them to control. So now they have more of an option or more range of motion becomes to opens up because they don't have to manage as much forces. Uh, let me know if you have an opinion on this. I've, I've thought about this a lot. I'm sure every coach who's had athletes do it has probably wondered if this is like, like how to help athletes improve this. But uh, I use crawling all the time in my warmups and crab walking like athletes. And this isn't quite the same in terms of like a cross connect uh, mechanism, but like some athletes just cannot lift their hips in, in crab walking to save their life. And I, I always wonder why sometimes I think, is it really that big of a liability? Like, and, and, and then if it is, or I want to improve that, which I think it would be a good thing to lift your hips up when crab walking. Um, how do I, reg- how would you regress someone in that point? I mean, I'm sure if we ever do crab walk, we always have athletes that just their butt drags on the ground. Like what's the regression then? Is it their back more points of contact? Like how do we manage that kind of thing? Or what's your yeah. thoughts on that? So is it more like a like transient, like you're actually walking, like you want to go across the floor or is it more like a stationary thing? I usually just have athletes do the crab walk across, like they're walking forward. Yeah. Yeah. They're walking forward. So anything where one, where you have opposite legs and opposite arms moving is a cross connect. So a, a bear crawl is a cross connect. Um, really a suitcase carry is a variation of a cross connect because you have the legs doing different things. Walking is cross connect, right? Cross connect is just more of a term, but Crab walking is a version of cross neck. So why they can't lift up their, their butt. I mean, there's probably a lot of different reasons, but some of, one of them is the inability to have shoulder extension. So um, in my course, I talk a lot about how um, we can divide the sternum into two different parts. And both parts have different influences to shoulder range of motion. So your sternal body itself is more of a reflection of your ability to internally rotate at 90 degrees of horizontal abduction, right? If that space is closed or being pulled down, like you would see in somebody who has a little more of a sway back, what you're going to see is you're going to see a reduction in that internal rotation. Mm -hmm. Once you, and then you go up, there's a, there's manubrium, which is this little ball that you can feel at your chest, essentially where your collarbone's attached to, that is more reflective of um, 15 to negative 15 degrees of shoulder flexion. So negative 15 just being extension. So think of like a tricep kickback or like a tricep extension when you bring your arm back. Like that is going to be influenced by the manubrium. So and the manubrium is influenced by the clavicle. So, for example, if I, you have somebody who they do a row and they roll their shoulder forward, their shoulder dumps forward as they roll back, we know this space, this manubrial space is probably not open because 
the clavicular pec, so the, the clavicular head of the pec that goes along the clavicle, that is pulling the clavicle down and that doesn't have the ability to open that up. So what happens then is if I can't extend my shoulders because that space isn't open, what I'm going to do is I'm going to arch my back to get it. And if I arch my back, my hips mm. are now flexed so they cannot extend. Yeah. Right. And so that's one aspect. And so what happens then they squeeze their shoulder blades together. But if I want to do a crab walk and go backwards, for example, I need my back to open. So I'm able to go back. Um, that's also going to affect how the, the scapula moves on the rib cage. Because if I, if I, again, the same example, if I arch my back, my shoulder blades are coming together. So now I don't have the ability to move my shoulders. I'm not able to flex my one shoulder as I'm walking forward. I can't bring my, 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 my arm forward because that rib cage doesn't have the ability to flex. And so now I just have somebody who has their shoulder blades back and they're more sagittal plane driven and they don't have the ability to rotate. And so they dump their pelvis forward. Their hips don't lift up because you need some hip extension to do that. That's one way I would say. Yeah. No, that as you're talking, an athlete, actually, he was a coach I used to work with uh, in particular who was a great athlete, really fast. He could, he was 5'11 and could dunk at age like 36 or something. But he, wow was so bad at that like we would go and do crawl workouts together out in the out in the turf and he loved it but he was so bad at crab walking and i never could figure out exactly why in my mind trying to be reductionist it's like oh he just must maybe he's more quad dominant or something yeah and it's it's true that's that's definitely that's definitely a factor but it's like the quad came because of everything else right yeah yes exactly with the rib cage and so that but i think about it like now if he would you know worked with basketball if that's a basketball player and it's because of a lack of shoulder extension okay probably not the end of the world you're probably going to be pretty fine for the most part but if it's a swimmer an upper extremity sport type person and i'm doing you know our team we're warming up we're doing walks and i got people that just can't crab walk like I've actually, as you're talking about the manubrium too, I've spoken with swim coaches who have been, have stated how important it is to open that like manubrium area, th area through the strokes. That was an yeah. important part of their coaching. And it's like, if you can't do that and you're trying to, you know, coach it, you know, like we need that area to, to the ribs to open in that respect. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, a couple, so I mentioned how the manure, so the big thing about the swimming is two things. One, obviously the shoulder extension is a big thing. But also, um, so zero to, to negative 15 is manubrium, but also about 130 to 180 is also manubrium because what happens is as I get up here, my pec minor will then will have to contract and that will expand my upper ribs, right? It'll open up my upper ribs and it'll roll my clavicle backwards. And so that's going to allow me to get overhead. So... Um, your question was, is like, okay, if they can't do that, what could they do? Um, what I would say to you is there could be a few things. One of them could be to change the exercise to something like a reverse bear crawl, because now what you're doing is you're getting them to push themselves backwards mm. and they're reaching a little bit in that 130-ish degree of range of motion. So let's say you're doing like a crawling sequence, right? You do a forward bear crawl. Then you do a reverse bear crawl. 
then you do the crab and see how that improves. Uh. Because that's going to open up the manubrium. And then if that still doesn't work, side planks are going to help. Tricep kickbacks are going to help. The tricep um, kickbacks. <laughs> I love the tricep. I'm bringing it back, man. I'm bringing the tricep kickback back. Um, but like, like, like a bent over tricep kickback with like a staggered stance. So let's say I'm doing a left arm tricep kickback. Um, I have my right foot forward, left foot slightly back, and I'm doing a tricep. I'm bent over doing tricep kickback. That's going to help. The tricep kickback is going to extend the elbow, extend the shoulder, open up the manubrium, mm-hmm. but it, based on the pelvic position as well with that, I'm also going to get some hip extension on that same side. Because if I let the tricep kickback do its job, it's going to try to push me to the other side, to the right, for example. And that's just going to be a hip extension on that left side. So I can't get shoulder extension. Why can't I get a shoulder extension? Because I'm getting the extension by arching through my back. I can cue the ribs down, but it's not going to help them too much. They're just going to roll their shoulders forward as you do that. Because again, that space is still closed. So maybe it's like, let's open up the manubrium and the upper back at the same time. So I'll do a reverse bear crawl because that's going to invert them slightly. That's going to work in that 130 degree range of motion where the manubrium is. So it's going to tone down the, the clavicular pec. And by going backwards, it's just hip extension the whole way. So now I also open up the hips a little bit, and then now I can get myself off the ground. Cool. I love that. I, with the tricep kickback, it's funny too, because like, I to me, I don't know, I think um, Angus Bradley puts a lot like you know, biceps being good, you know, like we neglect like just like little muscle groups actually being like actually helpful, like training biceps or calves for things. But I was thinking like that makes sense with the tricep kickback being an opener. Like it's it's the opening mechanism. I work I worked alongside uh, for a year um, a, st- a swim strength coach. Uh, this was back like 2012, 2013, who was uh, pretty well known in the swim strength community and a guy who, as I got to know him, I don't think really used a lot of the status quo exercises. He, a lot of it was very intuitive, like what his intuition came up with. And I swear yeah. there was tricep kickbacks in that program for yeah. swimmers. I know. I just kind of, I don't know if it was just, it felt good for the shoulder if he was, you know, but like kind of yeah. makes sense. It, it's, it's funny to think about, it would be funny to have an article or a small book of like bodybuilding slash fitnessy exercises that have real world athletic function. And like, you could list those out. I know, man, there's another one that I really like. And you know, like the old school bodybuilding where people used to do bicep curls, look down their bicep, but <laughs> they were onto something, man, by flexing my bicep and doing the curl, especially if I bring my elbow in front of me a little bit, that's going to open up my upper back. And then if I turn my head and look down at my bicep as I do it, what happens is I turn my spine Let's say I'm looking to the right. I will turn my spine to the left as I look to the right. That's going to create space in my upper back. And then you just increase shoulder flexion because you've opened up that upper part of your rib cage to let the scapula move up there. So bicep curls help shoulders, shoulder health. <laughs> meathead, uh, functional meatheadism, or I'm, 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 I'm drawing up a book right now in my head. It'll be, 
that's it man. i love it exactly. <laughs> I, I used to i used to make fun of athletes because they would like do pull-ups and like like chin-ups with their palms in and look at their bicep and now i'm like maybe that was like a little intuitive kind of functional thing they were just trying to sneak in there yeah honestly it's so funny because i was talking to a client of mine and i was getting her to do something and she's like you know this variation feels better actually like like so she just started doing something herself like i said okay you're gonna do you know i think it was like a crab position or something i actually think it was that and she felt better um turning her hands backwards versus forwards right she's like i was pinching my my wrist and i'm just thinking to myself you know why may she feel better that way it's because as she tilts her because if i don't have internal rotation I'm going to have a hard time extending my wrist. So if I turn my hand out, I'm going to externally rotate. And now what happens is I'm pulling my shoulder back. So she's actually going to get some more manubrium from there. She's like, this actually feels better. So sometimes like looking at people and what they're doing and just because it it feels better, it's probably like they don't know why it's happening, but they're probably correct in, in what they're doing. Um, it's just, as we start to understand more, we start to understand why that may feel yes. better or why that's actually helping. Right. It makes me think of the term. I just heard this. I, I think it was a Charlie Weingroff thing, but like, it's not evidence-based practice. It's practice-based evidence or something like that. And it's like, yeah. we see the practice and then here's the evidence that comes out of it. And, um, yeah. it just makes me think like, I was just, I was just writing about this, uh, in my online course I'm working on is thoughts on why did i take to squatty type running like running in semi-squatted positions so much when adarian bar first taught it to me and it's because before then i was running over like little mini hurdles and i was doing like run tall run a little more squatted run a little more squatted and it was like the squatted there was a squatted position that just felt so powerful and so fast and so much glutes turning on and i was like there's something to this man i've been trying to run tall for like 10 years and it never made me faster and then I think this is what it feels like to be fast. And now as I'm learning more and more about it, about like the mid stance component of being a little more squatted and the way the shin drops and, you know, obviously there's a limit. You can't run too squatted, but like there's, it, it's all these things. Um, anyways, needless to say, as I feel like it's almost as if they're, we have like these archetypes of all these exercises and movements, but then you give that to an athlete and maybe you don't say as much to them and you start to see, well, what feels good? Like, why did that feel good for you? And, and that can tell us a lot. Well, hundred percent. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just communication with, with the athlete or the person. Right. Um, and you're right. I think the categorizing of exercises is, is, is a big thing. And, you know, I think it's definitely evolved over time um, in terms of, you know, how we start to look at things and, you know, Pat Davidson, or I would say Mike Boyle first was the one who first kind of started categorizing exercises. And then I really liked what Pat Davidson was doing and how he categorized. Um, and then for me, what I do is I would say, like, I, I think about those in the back of my head, always those kind of principles, but I've kind of evolved my own way of doing it as well, where like, entire phases and like, you know, it sounds a little crazy, but like entire phases or entire blocks of training are based on the different phases of gait, um, just because of the qualities that they improve. And like, I have this upper body program that I, I made and it's literally based on the different levels of shoulder flexion and what each level of shoulder flexion actually does 
or where it improves or where it expands um, so that you're not putting somebody in too deep a shoulder flexion too soon, but building them from the bottom. And so it's like, if we categorize the exercise, so like maybe we do the first phase is like, maybe we do like um, heels elevated split squat. We do heels elevated, um, you know, zercher or goblet squats, right? Maybe to a box if you want to limit the depth. Um, or you do reverse lunge, you do low cable presses, or you do um, a bridge with dumbbell presses because when you bridge up, that changes the angle of the thorax. So when you're pressing, it's like a low press, right? So you're not going too deep into shoulder flexion. And the, the logic behind that is that if with, with lower reaching exercises, I expand my, I open up my upper back. So I'm basically putting the shoulder blades back into a better starting position by opening my upper back and opening up the space um, below my scapula, below my, yeah, below my scapula, um, which think of like your lats as, as something that would compress that area to arch my back as we were discussing in the crab position, right? Where I may flare my ribs up. Um, so doing lower reaching exercises or heel elevation exercises going to bring me into more of a heel strike bias, which is then going to open up some of that initial shoulder flexion, external, internal rotation. And then I can move on to more of a mid-stance phase, which is a little more force production. Now I'm getting into strength, right? It's like heel strike hypertrophy. It's like you look at an off season and this is just my theory. Like this is kind of, could be out there, but the first phase of like an off season is more heel strike. It's more, you know, hypertrophy. Let's build some more muscle mass. Let's build some more range of motion. Let's try to restore some of that range of motion that we lost from the in season. And then we move into more strength in the second phase, right? You have a lot of different people who like, you know, you can do triphasic in that phase. You can do a bunch of different things, but that phase is more mid stance. I need to start producing force. Hmm. Then I start getting into maybe a little bit more power, more velocity. So I limit the amount of volume, increase the load. Now I'm in more toe-off because that is more propulsion. That's more force production. That's more speed. I need to get off the ground quickly. I need to propel off my toe, right? Then I get into, you know, a little bit more of the specific type of training as we get close to the training camp or something. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's just a theory that like, I'm kind of working on right now, but like, you know, and like, and maybe sees out there, it's like, oh, you're just trying to, you know, fit everything into this. But honestly, what I'm doing is I'm just trying to explore the depth in which I can, you know, justify things. But for me, it just categorizes exercises so much easier by thinking about it in those principles that we discussed at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah. I think it can draw a clarity as to why some systems have worked really well. One. Well, I'll say this too, is I, um, actually, I want to have Eric Huddleston back on. Uh, he had a chart on his Instagram. I was talking about basically working all the expansion stuff, all the compression stuff, and then all the expand, like it's basically accumulation yeah. intensification. You know, it's like accumulation is more expansive stuff. And I think that goes mm-hmm. with the supination, the heel strike, right? Like, and, um, Tony Wells, uh, was a, he's passed away for some time now, I think, but was world famous sprint coach, got incredible results out of his high school athletes. And to my knowledge, they did a ton of bounding stuff in the fall, the off season. Mm-hmm. To me, there's nothing that's more like, 
hey, we're going to have more joint options than bounding. It's an exaggerated sprint stride. You need the heels to do it well. And I was just thinking too, like you, you were saying like reaching, the ability to reach and do kind of like the PRI reaching squat or reaching bar squat, that would fit with being able to use your heel and bounding. I'm just thinking, I don't think a lot of people I've worked with who just are people who can't bound are usually, I think the people who are stuck in that, like, you That's know, it. they're stuck back. Ah. Exactly. So it's like, yeah, exactly. You can do, um, for example, like for, for heel strike for power, it's like some of the things that I do is more like, Think of like a med ball chest pass, right? I'm literally shoving myself back. Mm. Like I'll get people in a tall kneeling position. So they're, 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 they're locking themselves in mid stance. And then I take a ball and I get them to throw it against the wall. That's causing them to reach. That's shifting their center of gravity back. So now they're moving towards heel strike, mm. right? Bounding, as you said, exactly. Um, a slight counter movement jump is going to do the same thing or alternatively landing, right? Landing exercises are going to be more of heel strike biased because it's more deceleration. As soon as our foot hits the ground during heel strike, that is we are decelerating our center of mass. So you get landing. And so now you can categorize power, jumping, you know, sprint training, all these different things into different count. Ca- so now you're training similar qualities, but still concurrent in a, in, in, in a fashion as well. Do you know what I mean? So it's just a different lens of viewing it. Um, it's probably no different than a lot of the other lens, just maybe has a different lean to it. But like I said, it's just a theory. I'm not, I haven't fully explored it yet. I, I don't know if it, if it works yet, but I'm testing it right now on some people mm-hmm. and getting some, some good results on it in terms of how their movement and hypertrophy improves. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Another one is like a, a blood cuff, blood cuff. That is the, it was a uh, pressure restriction cuffs. Like yeah, pressure restriction cuffs. Yeah. how expansive is that? Right. Low load, high volume. Hmm. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Like that's going to promote some external rotation for sure in hmm. those areas. And I, I mean, I, I've done it more from a rehab standpoint. Um, but like post-op, I mean, hmm. it, it restores a lot of range of motion quickly because it, re- it re- allows for less load, but higher volume. And so therefore higher intensity at that area. Um, and so it's just interesting. Again, you get blood in the, in, into, the, into the tissue, you expand it. That's yeah, that's it was just so cool. Yeah, to like, I mean, Eric's chart was awesome. And and maybe I'll even put that on the shows because everything you're saying goes with that. It's almost like here's all the expansive things that we can do. Here's all the compressive things we can do. And just to know what in the program is expansive and what is and because you can't just do if you just do compression all the time, all year round, I could tell you what the result's going to be. You're going to have more power for a while. But then you that's where you start to get injuries. You start to lose like stride length and things like that. It just um as you were talking to i actually drew my little notes i'm like drawing like a sprint periodization i'm like all right let's the faults do bounding then we'll go into squatty running that's mid stance and then we can do some uh over speed like boom there's your exactly. periodization plan there you go exactly right so it's just another periodization plan i have to take a look at that picture i haven't i haven't seen it but you know it's uh yeah it gets it gets very interesting when you start to think this way because now you're coordinating everything that you've learned and that was the thing that I found going circling back to, to all the systems is I didn't know where to go with it. They never really applied it to something like a squat or something like sprinting or some of these things that 
traditionally, when you get into strength conditioning, you learn. And I just didn't like, it was like, you kind of put all that on pause and then you're trying to learn this and, but you can't figure out a way how they both come together. And this is why I think like this way of thinking may be starting to bring it together where we can start to use some of the, the theories that we used or that we thought, but there's this system that we've, you know, you know, there's a system now that we can start to put it into that starts to make sense and we can plug and play a little bit. Um, and that's why I say like everybody who takes evolve, I usually say in order to understand the programming point of view, right on the top of the page, heel strike, mid stance, toe off, and then right down. Okay. Mm. Start with lunges, all the different lunges. All, and then you do it in three categories and then the squats and then the deadlifts and then the presses. And then Another and then like I also also say like as I said the force vectors it's like horizontal is heel strike, but it's heel strike going backwards right horizontal force is going backwards, mm-hmm. whereas toe off is horizontal force is going forwards. Then you've got the vertical forces. It's like if I have weight in my hand overhead, I am heavier. More force is going into the ground. That's internal rotation. So I made a post a little bit ago which is again kind of out there but i'm just like hey i'm just thinking about this what do you think about a front delt raise being more heel strike because it kind of pushes us back lateral raise being more mid stance and then a bent over rear fly being a little more toe off because i'm bent over and i'm pushing myself forward and people are like i don't know you know like and it's just like again it's just me playing around with stuff but I mean, you can go down as deep as you want to with these things, right? And so um, it, it gets very interesting. Yeah, man, I have, I have so many more questions I'd love to get into. Like you're just like getting my, my brain's like, I could be talking to you and asking for three hours. But uh, Angus Bradley had talked about like just the biggest misnomer, huge misnomer in SNC being like, we need to train posterior chain and like big chest and like crunch everything back. Right. And then, but if you crunch everything back, that just puts you in early stance, doesn't it? And if you lean forward, well, I guess it just depends. Um, but I just feel like, uh, maybe speak to like, instead of anterior and posterior dominant, just thinking muscles, it's more stance. Like it's more like that would solve it more than thinking your anterior chain. So train this muscle. It's more, if we said early stance, mid stance, late stance, it's probably more that than it is muscle. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the easiest way to think about the different stances and the way that I look at it that differentiate the different stances are two things. One, the shin angle, right? And what I mean is, you know, you have a shin that's behind the foot, more of like a a positive shin angle. No, sorry, a negative shin angle. Um, Where it's behind the foot, that's going to be more heel strike, right? So think of your front foot elevated split squats. You're going to be starting a little bit more of a heel strike. And then you go into mid stance is more vertical. And then you go positive is more toe off. Those are differentiation. So, so you think front foot elevated split squat or heels elevated split squat, you go normal split squat for mid stance. And then you go, um, like a rear foot elevated split squat for toe off, right? You, you have more weight on that front foot you're driving more internal rotation. Would you want to like have, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just had this, like, sure. I always hear like, late propulsive rear foot elevated but if the front shin's still vertical does it matter like would you want to like bend the front shin forward in that rfe split squat to get late you know what i'm saying like to be more late propulsive with it 
yeah, you're always, it's always a spectrum, right? So front foot elevated split squat is I'm starting you in heel strike and you're going to end in mid stance. Mm. A rear foot elevated split squat, because I'm on one leg, I'm going to start in mid stance. It's very hard to, to do a rear foot elevated split squat with the shin, like a, like a negative shin angle. It's very hard because your weight's on top of that foot. So as you go down, you go into that toe off or leg propulsion, right? So I'm never trying to restrict the knee and it's moving. I always want the knee to move. I always want the shin to move. It's more about what position do I want to start you in and then end you off in. It's like you hit the ground with too much pronation. Um, you can't hit the lateral heel. So what I want to do is I want to start you into heel strike so that I can teach your shin how to move forward into pronation rather than the tibia moving too fast into pronation too quickly. You can't control it, right? But the e another easy way to think of it is, again, the difference between your center of gravity moving forward or center of gravity moving back. Um, moving back is heel strike, forward is toe off. It's like pretend like my hand is on your chest and I push you backwards. That is going to be more heel strike where your center of gravity is behind your foot. Okay, so your rib cage is more flexed. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're not collapsing your chest, but you're reaching. As soon as I push you, you're reaching a little bit. Your rib cage is more flexed. That is going to be more heel strike. That's why a flexed thorax is you know, something that we should be searching for because we want to open up that rib cage, that posterior rib cage, so we can bring the center of gravity backwards into heel strike. Alternatively, if I want to get you toe off, I stand behind you and I push you from behind. That's what most people are in, where they're being pushed from behind and going onto their toes, right? So we need to push them back. And so, as I always say, Am I trying to pull this person back or am I trying to push them forward? If I'm in heel strike, I've got great amount of range of motion. If I'm in toe off, I have limited mm. range of motion, quite stiff. If I'm in mid stance, I'm kind of halfway. I've got internal rotation, but not a lot of external rotation. If I'm in toe off, I don't have ER, IR. If I'm in heel strike, I have an okay amount of internal, but I've got some good external, yeah. right? And so people always ask me in, in my course, they're like, well, what is the ideal? If there was a neutral posture, what would be? And for me, what I say is somewhere between heel strike and mid stance. If we can say there is a late heel strike, it'd probably be there because I don't have... I, if I get to mid stance, I lose external rotation. If I get to heel strike, I don't have a lot of internal, but if I go in the transition period, I probably have a good amount of both. Gotcha. Oh, that's awesome stuff. I, I'm already like, I'm wanting to see like the charts of all like the heel. Cause you, you, even as you said, like heel, it's like heel, more options, mid stance, less options, toe off less. It's just, there's that expansion to intensification. And, um, I, I just, that, even that thought just gives me a lot to think about. As well yeah. as just, yeah, like bounding and different sprint contexts and speed skipping and stuff in the weight room. It's really cool. There's so yeah. much to think about there. Yeah. Well, I, I even like, again, like I'm, I'm crazy with this stuff. Like I even have divided my assessment into to make it easier. And this was a little bit of a 
FMS influence, how they have like a one, two, and three. Um, it's not fixed by any means, but I've divided, I've attempted to divide the measurements of, you know, for example, like a toe touch into three different phases. And depending on that phase, you are in a heel strike, miss dance, or toe off type of presentation. Um, like again, heel strike, you have a lot of range of motion, toe off, you don't. And so it's like, categorizing it and be like, okay, well, now you've got that categorization of the assessments. How does that match up with your categorization of your exercises? It's like, okay, you're a two, right? You're in mid stance. Okay, great. I'm going to need something before that. I'm going to maybe need a one to help improve that. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And so it's like, I've organized it that way. And, uh, it's taken me a while. It's Mm -hmm. taken me a couple of years, but it's, uh, it's come together, which is kind of cool. Yeah. It's the code that could explain a lot of what we see, like that weird, that weird thing that worked, that helped an athlete. Why did it help them? Let's go with this. That, that just could, I think could help a lot of people out. Sounds really cool. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So I think our time's running out and then you said, you mentioned your course. Do you want to mention that or where people can find or learn more about you, Alex? Yeah, sure. Yeah. My course is Evolve Mentorship where it's basically essentially what we've talked about this whole podcast, like my my uh, thought process or um, my model, in which I use essentially taking everybody from what the thorax pelvis do, what the feet do, assessing that, understanding how to assess the foot, the lower limb, um, the whole assessment, compensatory strategies, what's happening there, and then like two or three weeks of programming um, and how to program for that, how to categorize exercises and case studies so we can apply it. Um, so that's evolved mentorship. And then I got my upper body program that I mentioned, which essentially is um, a nine week program that breaks program down three different phases based on shoulder flexion and using shoulder flexion as a objective measurement to progress from each phase and something that you can use yourself, um, even with your clients and stuff. So um, it's pretty cool. Um, I'm pretty excited about that and we've got a lot of things on the work. So um yeah no really excited about that all right thank you so much for your time alex it was great talking to you i'm sure we'll have other conversations because i think we got like one question done out of 10 so (laughs) 10 shows later we'll have Um, another yeah thanks so much joe i really appreciate it Thanks for tuning in for another show. We really appreciate y'all being here. If you enjoy what we're doing and enjoy this podcast series, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you're listening to. We'd appreciate it if you hit us up um, or posted up a rating for the show. And we'll see you guys next week with another great guest. Have a good one.